Dr. Alice Atalanta is a writer working primarily with the military and special operations community. Her books include Navigating Chaos with Jeff Boss and Meditations of an Army Ranger with Lieutenant Colonel J.C. Glick. Kathy Livermore is a former Army brat. She's a current Havoc Journal writer. She's also the sister of Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint. And Elisa Suderman is the chief marketing officer at Havoc Journal. So these ladies joined me to discuss what the military needs to know about civilians in the civilian world. Or at least that was the plan. Uh, we covered it. We, we stayed pretty much on topic. Um, we just jumbled up the entire order and structure that I had planned for the episode. I'm going to pretty much blame Kathy because she started off with this story about her and her son and how they send Halloween candy every year to deployed soldiers and why they started doing that. And we were all listening and commenting and talking. And next thing you knew, like two thirds of the episode was done. So uh, at that point, then I tried to add some structure and, you know, put things back in the episode. Um, it doesn't matter. It was fun. It was a blast. We cover a lot of ground. This episode is really, um, I think, going to resonate with veterans that are transitioning out of the military. If you're struggling with a sense of purpose, trying to find your place, um, I think there's a lot of stuff in there for you. Uh, and this episode's for you. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. It's awesome. I mean, it, it's 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 just amazing to connect with this tribe. And I say it to Elisa all the time of, of people who have found a supportive, meaningfully supportive role to the military community because it's such a misconception. I think that we all think, oh, you know, I didn't enlist, I didn't join, so I missed my chance or I missed the boat. And we forget that idea. I always say it's like World War II, the war effort. You know, in World War II, everybody had a role. Even little kids had something they were trying to do to, that they felt like they're playing in their garden or they're collecting their pennies or whatever they were doing. Um, but when we find our ways to support and to help with the mission, right, it takes a village. Oh, exactly. And that's something my youngest son and I were talking about because trying to work out some nerves on coming onto this. And I'm like, well, do you remember that we usually send a box of Halloween candy and to somebody deployed every year? And I was like, well, do you remember how that came about? And he's like, no. And I, and so I had to tell him the story. It's when he was a little guy, he was sitting in the back after around here, I'm in the South. So there's a lot of Halloween festivals and trunk or treating. And so he's sitting in the back stuffing his face with his, you know, with all his loot. And he's like, mom, soldiers don't get to go trick or treating because they're too busy keeping us safe. <laughs> and so from then on, we buy extra candy and, send them candy because again, you know, that was something he could understand at his little, you know, in his little mind. And so it's just something we've done forever. But like you said, it's, you know, that little, that war effort, you yeah. know, so I can teach them that these guys are important and they are sacrificing something so that you can sit in the, in your mama's car and stuff your face with Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> so that's sweet. Yeah. Like that's, I said, it's, it's really sweet. It's also really, um, it, I hate it. I'm going to use the, uh, no, this is where my warped mind goes. That's almost <clears throat> dated now when I hear that, Kathy. It's like, 
that seems like that's so passe to have some you know kids being raised to think about that, to think about you know the vets and, and think about hey we get candy and they don't necessarily, um, and that's to me. I mean, I think this is just my personal bias. I'm such an institutionalist. I think it's that when you build an institution and when you support an institution, there's something incredibly valuable about it. Obviously, it depends which institution you're doing that to, but for something as fundamental as the military and um, the fact that there are people like you that do that and that think about that um, is everything, I think, because you you can't operate alone and you can't – I think I think a lot of troops even take that for granted, um, and they shouldn't because I don't think that's as common as it used to be, and that means a lot to hear that. That's what, I think that's incredibly sweet sentiment. Yeah, yeah, we try, and again, it's you know I'm not you know when we talk about Elisa and Dr. Alice, you know all their incredible work that they do, you know the stuff that they do is amazing, and. You know, I'm not at that level. I I don't work with TBI. I don't have the knowledge that they do. But it's finding what I can do. And that's something that we can do. And I can teach my boys to be respectful. And hopefully that, that'll get disseminated on to their little friends. So. I'm going to call an audible just because um, I think we're already in the flow of something. And um, if you're listening to this, you're listening to the Weekly Havoc. This is a roundtable discussion of the week's events from those staff and writers at Havoc Journal. But I want to call an audible and and start off with some of the articles um, because I think we're on a tangent that has a lot of room for mining. Um, And then we can circle back to this week. I didn't go with a news topic, as you guys saw. I kind of went more with a – I want to say a philosophical question, but something that was kind of a bit broader in scope. But while we're talking about supporting um, how civilians support the military, Kathy, I wanted to throw this out there because I know you and I talked about um, that article about uh, why it's important to thank – why I thank people for uh, their service. And I just want to tell you one anecdote that comes to my mind every time I hear any discussions about civ-military relations and why we thank people for their service or don't. when I was coming for basic, I remember uh, going between basic and AIT and I had to fly through Lambert airport in St. Louis. And it was something like a six hour layover. And I remember walking around in my, at the time ACUs with no patches on or anything. I had no unit, you know, I looked like I was right out of basic and this was right in the, uh, you know, in the heart, in the heat of uh, Iraq and, and, and all the politics and, and opinions going around about that war. And I remember a woman coming up to me as I was kind of meandering through the airport, just killing time, going from the USO to a shop or something. And she came up to me and she said, um, and she pressed a hundred dollar bill in my hand. And she said, my nephew is overseas right now. And I I'm, I'm, haven't been able to be in touch with them, um, but I can see you and you're here. So here you go. I said, well, there's no way I can take a hundred dollar, you know, the, the money. And she um, was, it, you know, was offended. She was like, she was like, no, no, no. She's like, wow. she's like, I see you. I don't get to see him, but I see you. And so by proxy, 
take this. And she literally walked away. And then this is all the same time. It's just kind of surreal now that I've never really said this out loud before. Then as I got onto the plane to go down to Texas, um, I was going to my seat and a rabbi stopped me in the aisle and pressed a $20 bill in my hand. I was making more money on this on this one layover than I was making in basic, but pressed a $20 bill in my hand. And I was like, I, I, hey, I'm, I'm not I'm not sitting here with a tin cup outside of 7-Eleven. And he said, uh, he said, no, 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 no. What you're doing is important. I said, you don't know me. You don't know what I do. I, I could be, you know, about to be kicked out of the military for all you know. I mean, but he, he wouldn't hear of it. He literally just pressed in there and it was absolutely an act of symbolism. It had nothing to do with me. But I sat down in my seat and I teared up and I thought, Jesus, if you can't fight for these people, who can you fight for? I mean, that's an exceptional um, trait. And that to me, I mean, that was the most jarring instance of civilian support for the military that I'd ever seen. Um, And God, it made me love the country and love the people and love whatever their ideologies, whatever their points of view, whatever other diverse metrics that we can categorize them into. Boy, we're we're all Americans. And that to me was um, incredibly moving. So that's my so Kathy, I'm going to feed that right back to you to your piece um, to, that you offered up because uh, uh, I just think that means that means a lot. Um, it meant a lot to me, and it still does. I'm kind of getting a little teary eyed just thinking about it right now. So I'm going to shut up and let you talk. Well, I think what you said is incredibly powerful because when you put that uniform on. I think a lot of times you forget your history because I know a lot of the guys that were that were around here because the base closest to me is logistics and missile defense. They don't feel like they have the fancy 82nd or the 101st. They're not the fancy guys. So I think sometimes they forget that their job is just as important. And when they put that uniform on, yeah, you're not – Right now, when I see you, you're not dodging bullets, but you put the uniform on. At one point, you knew that this could happen and that you could stand in harm's way for me. And I can't say thank you to everybody. I can't reach everybody. I can't provide, you know, any of the help that you need when you come home. But I can say thank you when I see you. And, you know, maybe that'll freak you out and because I get a lot of, oh, I'm just doing my job, ma'am. You are. And your job is keeping me safe. And you're going to know that I appreciate you. It, it, it's, um, it's a great sentiment. That, that piece that you referenced uh, is called Why I'm Thanking You for Your Service on Havoc Journal. And again, we're talking with Kathy Livermore, um, who grew up as an Army brat and um, writes for Havoc Journal and is uh, perhaps – most notably of all, the little sister of Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint. So um, that's why we're uh, launching off with that piece. I want to shift to uh, Dr. Alice Atalanta, um, who is also joining us. And um, Alice, what's what's your take on this? Obviously, we're talking about um, you know uh, the piece that Kathy referenced 
first and foremost. But I, one of the things that I think about, I'm just going to corny this up a little bit. Uh, I, I think the corniest comeback to thank you for your service that I ever heard is, hey, you're worth it. And uh, that was from uh, a, a seal that was pitching something on Shark Tank, I think. And as somebody that works an awful lot with soft people, um, I, I thought you'd get a kick out of that. <laughs> well, you know, that's funny because if Doc Pete, Doc Pete Chambers is listening, Doc, that's you. That's that's what he says all the time. And he's a good friend of mine and someone I'm working with right now. Um and I, and I love him to pieces. And uh, coming from Doc Pete, he's a cowboy with a big mustache. So it sounds pretty good coming from Doc Pete. You can't, you can't not love it. Um, and I know he means it from his soul. Um, you know, when I think about this and listening to Kathy, and, and you've got to forgive me because I'm, I'm kind of a geek and I take everything from this kind of, maybe I'm taking this too far. But when you, when you told me you were going to be talking about this topic, I started thinking about... Um, values and and the things that our service members value that leads people to seek the role of military servants in 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 the first place and i think you know there's a lot going on there with what civilians really admire and things that they know that they're not capable of doing folks who understand they're not run towards a sound of gunfire type of people but they understand that gunfire needs running towards and they're grateful to the people that run towards it um, there's certainly a, a big factor of that but those values that Kathy was talking about instilling in her son, honor, duty, and service, right? Those are the three key things. And those are at the core, I think, of the hearts of our service members. And what, where a connection happened in my mind recently, I was reading a book that is, I highly recommend. Um, I wrote it down here so I didn't mess up the title. It's called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by a, a a psychologist named John Haidt that I actually studied with. Oh, really? Yeah, when I was um, an undergrad. Yeah, he was one of the best professors I ever had. I believe it. And one of the things he says in there that um, we all judge, build our beliefs on what he calls moral foundations. And there's basically five of them, five categories he identifies. He says they're caring, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity, or what's sacred. And what happens in our culture, in the United States and the populations that he's studied, is that there's a big divide among Americans between those who are really just focused on caring and fairness and those who value loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And that's a very complex way I think of saying honor, duty, and service. You know, there's a divide. It, it, it starts to manifest itself politically, ideologically, morally, ethically, religiously among Americans who for whom these things, honor, duty, and service, tradition, American morals and ideals are very, very important and very highly upheld. And there's another half of our population for whom those things aren't paramount. As long as everything feels fair and we're being empathetic, they feel okay with everything else. I think, and I might be pushing us now into that flow of talking about or where my mind was, is thinking about what do veterans need to understand about the civilian world. But I think in my work, you know, with the Green Beret Foundation or with the authors that I work with um, independently and so many veterans who I've interviewed and worked with, so many things that make, I think, our service members feel alienated when they flow back into that civilian space is they're picking up on the fact that while for most of their life, honor, duty and service were paramount values underpinning everything they've done to the point of being willing to die for the person next to you, that's not always true in the civilian space. It's not true for every civilian. And um, when we have people like Kathy who are 
instilling those values in their children, making sure that we have another generation of Americans who understand those principles that respect service, that feel a sense of duty to to give back to those who serve them. Um, I think that is unspeakably powerful because we're we're giving we're giving them the culture they're fighting for. We're we're building that here and creating that here. Um, and and you know, for me, when I when I was just thinking about this, and forgive me if I'm again flowing the no, topic no, no, somewhere no, no, else, no, but no, not at all. Yeah, um, you know, I think my mind just blows up into how many service members say, you know, gosh, the civilian workplace, I, I can't trust these people. I don't know who's got my back and who doesn't. Loyalty, um, you know, um, um, sacrifice, service values. What matters to people anymore? You know, they, you know, you come home to a culture of first world problems. People watching the Kardashians, and you think to yourself, you have no idea what real problems are. I've seen real problems and people with real problems. I've seen people that are happy in spite of real problems. So, um. So yeah, I mean that that's where that's where I go no, with it. And listen, I'm doing you no favors because I, I we're throwing out broad brush strokes to start with, and um, there's an awful lot that I want to double back into in mine in what you're talking about. Again, because I'm doing this all backwards, and we're going to totally blame that mm-hmm. on Kathy because uh, if she didn't start off with something that grabbed us right off the bat, um, I would have done this in a more sensible, logical way. But because we did, mm-hmm. um, as a reminder to everybody listening. You just hearing from Dr. Alice Atalanta, who works as a writer primarily with the military and soft community. She's got two books that are currently out: "Navigating Chaos" with Jeff Boss, a former Dev Crew member, and "Meditations of an Army Ranger" with Lieutenant Colonel J.C. Glick of 75th Ranger Regiment. We're going to talk about a lot more stuff that Alice has going on later as well. But just to identify all of our players in this today. Um, I also want to bring in Elisa Suderman, who's sitting there patiently, quietly, wondering if I've totally forgotten that she's even there today, and I haven't. Uh, Lisa, of course, is Havoc Journal's Chief Marketing Officer. Hi, Elisa. Hi. How are you? I'm good and completely <laughs> disorganized. And again, we're going to blame all this on Kathy because she got us started <laughs> on a really good topic that has fed into a whole lot more, and I don't want to lose any of the threads we've talked about. But Elisa, I want to throw it to you. Um Alice just threw a lot of stuff out there at us, and I want to take a few minutes and mind some of that. Where, what are your thoughts? Where do you come at it from in this? Um, so, you know, a lot of people will ask. I've been uh, working directly in this community for the past um, six to seven years, and I think a lot of people ask why I do what I do, why I'm working in the military community, because it's such a niche and a small community. A lot of people don't realize how small <laughs> this world is that we're working in. And um, I always retort back to the fact that, you know, really ever since World War II, we have the most amount of veterans and service members walking among us every day. And you may not even recognize some of them because their identities are not uh, in line with um, the everyday American patriot. You've got people who are into um, yoga, you've got and having that holistic lifestyle and you've got folks who um, are still doing private military contracting, all of these different things that really span uh, a vast majority of individuals um, throughout their individual communities. And so you just never know who you might touch on a daily basis. And, um, you know, the reason why I want to make a a dramatic impact um, in my own personal way um, and leave a good legacy behind for uh, my family 
And, and in doing so, I really, um, I want to give back and I want, um, I had just lost my train of thought a little bit here. No, no, no. It's all right. um, I'm just going to correct you on one thing you threw out there though. You absolutely know when you're interacting with a member of the military, because they will always have tribal tattoos, Oakley's and working out (laughs) of the CrossFit gym. So let's just stipulate, you know, you're always pretty much going to be able to identify them. Yes. Um, so I, you know, I, I think, um, just honoring those who have served is, is really important. And, um, Man, I, I lost my train. No, no, no. It's all right. I will, we'll circle back to it. I want to, um, because where you're leaving us is right where um, Alice posited something, um, talking about John Haight's dichotomy and the way he broke down um, the alignment of ideology. I I've, I've, haven't heard that. And, you know, I've been, um, two of John Haight's books are on my reading list, Alice, which means I aspire to be a much smarter person than I am. But um, <laughs> but that is one of them, and uh, that's a really interesting way of breaking that down. Um, wh- Kathy, what does that make you think as a mom, as somebody that supports the military? If we're divided, if we're looking at people that are looking at things through the com- through the lens of hey, there's values like loyalty that I'm trying to adhere to, and others who, I mean, this is hardly a, a bad motive, but are looking at things simply through the lens of fairness and empathy. Um, how as how as civilians does that affect us and how does that make it more jarring when we see military members then try to interact in the civilian world and not maybe understand which tunnel they're going down or which lane they're falling into? That's a good question. I think a lot of what you see is I think it's just different and I wonder to circle back I wonder if a lot of it is generational because I grew up as an army brat and so I dealt of course growing up I dealt with more of the guys who were active but now I'm seeing the guys who have come back and are transitioning and I think for me the only thing I can do is when you see it, you know, you help and, and teach, I'm not making any sense, but you know, you teach, I teach my boys what I want them to put out in the world. And I hope that by teaching them the values of the loyalty of honor and similar values to what my soldiers grew up with, or my soldiers have gone through that they will become that advocate for when somebody does come back and they're trying, they're, they're having a hard time dealing with it, that by instilling the same values in my civilian sons, because I don't think either of my sons will ever, ever be military, but I'm hoping that instilling the same kind of values, it'll help make them advocates for the person or to be that loyal person that, that can be turned to. Yeah, no, it does. I'm going to do some level setting with that. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about what the military needs from civilians um, and needs to know about civilians, sorry, uh, but really what the, how the military can integrate, understand, and um, make that civ military divide work in their favor and, and work for the country as a whole. A lot of that comes from a couple of comments, a couple of articles I've seen in the past few weeks. One that talked about veterans as kind of a secular sainthood, that we've gone a complete 180 from Vietnam and the days of being a Vietnam era pariah are over. 
But now there's an awful lot of, uh, I like that term, secular sainthood being foisted on veterans where, hey, you've seen so much, you've done so much, you're not a Vietnam era doughboy, you're this highly trained, you know, uh, the perception is you're a killing machine who's also got vast uh, geopolitical knowledge and and uh, because of where you've been and the training you've been put through, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot of that leads a military member, whether they're a veteran or still in, to believe that, hey, civilians need to understand something about the military. Let me. I want to make sure that civilians get where I'm coming from. Alice, I think you talked about that, where it's like, hey, so few of us have served. Um, enough of your first world problems. Understand what a real problem looks like. Understand where I'm coming from. And there's something to that. And we can touch on that a little bit more. That's certainly a broad topic. To me, what's interesting, though, is what the is how the military uh, military individuals can get ambushed by civ- the civilian culture, and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. I mean mostly they get blindsided; they they not, are, are literally a fish out of water, and that I see that whether it's a veteran transitioning out of the military into civilian the civilian world, or with military leaders that are now interacting with civilian leaders, and maybe you've done twenty years in the military. But the military raised you, and your sensibilities are all based in the military. And suddenly, to interact with your peer group in the civilian world—that's people coming from a very different, uh, with very different values, very different sensibilities. And understanding that will kind of—you have to understand that if you're going to mitigate any negative effects and make sure that the communication is understood in both directions. And Alice, to your point. What I really see with uh, with military leaders is there's that common sense in the military, no matter how big your disagreements, there's never any confusion that you're on common ground because at the end of the day, we both have to shoot in the same direction. So we can argue. And as a result, there's a certain freedom in your interactions, especially with your peer group. Because you can go, hey, we can talk shit. We can uh, say this, that, and the other. We can have wild arguments. You have guys that span the, the the spectrum of political ideologies. But at the end of the day, we're, we're all together. And because that's so well understood, we can have really free-flowing discussions. Whereas in the civilian world, there's kind of, let's call it a human resources, an HR-focused mindset that's taken over, where when you set, set, step outside the door, you have to be aware of your risk of litigation. <laughs> you have to be aware of, you know, right. your left and right limits about because nothing is taken for granted. Right. We're not all, we may not all, we don't assume that we're all shooting in the same direction. So how does that play out with what you're talking about with the John hate dichotomy and, and with what's something that military veterans may need to be aware of as they look at their civilian counterparts? Well, I think you, you nailed it right there. And it's funny because I, um, I was discussing some of this with a good friend of mine who's still active um, in the SEAL teams yesterday, just trying to wrap my head around this and kind of feel him out, you know, as he's wrapping up a 20 year career. And he, the first thing out of his mouth was you have to walk on eggshells in the civilian world. And um, I think that that, you know, in, in his team and, and in his unit, just the amount of accountability that needs, that needs to be there in order for them to do their job accurately and well and efficiently um, that's just probably the biggest culture shock, I think, um, coming into the civilian world. And I know for me, and it's funny, I, I think a lot about tribes and, and the things that make the military community feel like home to me and feel like my tribe and what those personality traits are and why it feels so right. 
And I remember when I went to work at the VA where I was for a couple of years, and I loved that aspect of the culture. When I was working with former service members at the VA, I loved that I didn't have to try to paint a pretty picture. I didn't have to try to butter them up before the email. I could just say what needed to be said. We did the thing. We got it done. We moved to the next there was day. a shared understanding. And, uh, there was common ground. Yeah. A shared understanding. Common ground. We're here to serve the veteran. This is what we're here to do. And to the point where I could really see, even within the culture of working at the VA, the difference between working like Staff Sergeant Murphy, my favorite from the Marines. He was my man. And we would always work together. We were efficient. We were great. I had a lot of difficulty with my first one up my chain of command, who was a civilian who'd worked her way into the VA for whatever reason, didn't really care about service, didn't really care about the veteran, would let her phone ring and ignore it. She and I butted heads constantly for that reason. And um, when I worked there, there was actually a class I ended up getting tapped to teach. It was called VA 101. And anybody that was a new hire, whether it was a janitor or a heart surgeon, had to take this course. And it was a couple hours. And I would come in and it was a basic rundown on military culture for civilians. I mean, a lot of them don't even know there's five branches of the military. They couldn't name all five. They didn't, you know. Um, and and then the flip side was also briefing both groups on, you know, formalities in the military community, the use of titles, acronyms, what's considered to be respectful, promptness, timeliness, um, and vice versa, kind of helping, giving everyone an open forum to discuss that there were going to be these cultural differences that we were actually, and this was on a very material level. We were really looking at specifically workplace conventions and things people were going to run into, um, trying to help prepare people for those, for those interactions. But, you know, that's, that was very specific to that workplace. And, um, on a broader level, when a veteran is, is reintegrating into civilian culture, I think, um, that's going to be a culture shock that, and, and, my what I've seen from the people I work with, and I think what's unique about working with the soft community is so many of the guys I work with can't really tell me much about their job at all. So mm. they go really deep into their personal lives. Mm. And I get a lot mm. quickly from people. Um, what I see for the people that seem to be most successfully um, transitioning and feeling happiest to that transition is people who have felt that they've reconnected with their tribe on the outside and that doesn't just mean former service members, but it means maybe a guy who's found jujitsu. And in the gym, mm. you know, in jujitsu, so many values that match up with the military, are you find that there, whether it's their faith community, and now they're going to churches and they're speaking, or guys who are firefighter paramedics or are volunteering, or they're still active in the reserves, but they're doing things that, that give them back that tribe so that it makes that civilian culture shock a little more palatable, where when you're in that social justice culture in that everybody gets a gold medal, everybody gets a participation prize culture, which is just such a slap in the face, I think, to to many service members. I think that that helps. Alice, what was your PhD in? What was your doctorate in? Comparative literature and literary theory. <laughs> so a lot of philosophy, yeah. philosophy, philosophy and literature. Humanities. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. And then at the VA, what did you um what did you do? What was your job at the VA? It was a little bit of everything. I just banged on the door till they let me in. So I worked in beneficiary travel. I worked in details. I released bodies to the morgue. That's great. That's great. So, well, no, I mean, that gives you a wide perspective of so many after effects that you see from military service. I wanted to throw something else out there. Um, As you're talking, one, one thought came to my mind about something that I think vets maybe sometimes have a hard time reconciling with when they leave the service. Um, 
and it it actually funnels back in. Elisa, if you remember when we, when you were on before and we talked about your your famous incident at the biker bar, going there and seeing uh, all the Rangers there, which I'm never going to let go. That we're going to bring that up every episode that you're on. But um, but I, I'm going to feed this to you. So one thought that comes to my mind is the group versus the individual. I think, and I guess I'll speak a little autobiographically only because I guess I have to, for me, when I transitioned out and it was, you know, a whopping four months ago, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. Um, I think there's a, I think one of the reasons in my case, I, I got a little disoriented and I had to ground myself was that I wasn't used to doing things purely for myself. And I don't mean that like, like, oh, you're just not selfish because you're in the military. Of course, plenty of people in the military are selfish. But it's about, it's that the metric, the standards that you're held to are group standards. So you have tabs, you have badges, you have ranks, you have certain steps on the ladder you are trying to fulfill. And those are group standards. Those aren't necessarily internally derived from you. That's you hitting metrics that have been established by the institution. And I think in my case, and I, I'm not sure, I don't think I'm alone, otherwise I wouldn't really mention this, but I think a lot of people can struggle with this, is when you get out and you go, okay, what's what's the ranger tab of the civilian world? You know, what 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 are the metrics that I'm trying to hit? And what you realize is in the civilian world, well, it's your own metric. Um, and what what made me think of this is when Alice was talking, and certainly about in Alice in your life, you're marching to the beat of your own drummer. You've had a very diverse educational and experiential life that's led you into this community. That's the strength yeah. of your own of your own efforts, and that's the strength of your own mindset and the strength and your own internal compass, your sense of direction about where you wanted to go. That to me, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I'm trying to think a little bit before I just say this, but I, I think that's relatively rare in the military mind. I think people obviously have a mm-hmm. sense internally about where they want to go, but especially if you've been raised in the army or the military, if you came in and that was your first real job after high school you're used to that internal drive being channeled into someone else's metrics and someone else's mm-hmm. uh, 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 award system and, and reward system. And it's not necessarily uh, derived from your own internal sense of, well, I'm trying to do this and I'm, I'm trying to do that. And once I've gotten, gotten this experience or uh, you know what have you, then I'm going to go pursue this individual path. And when you suddenly become a civilian and it's like, hey, it your credentialing doesn't matter quite as much. What really matters is your internal drive to execute whatever it is you're trying to do. Lisa, what do you, am I making too much of this, too little of this? I, do you see this in, um, in your work? Um, does any of this resonate or am I just kind of talking in a small circle here to myself? No, I, I, I definitely see in, everyday conversation that I have with a variety of my friends who have served. Um, It's an identity crisis. And I think that there is a lot to be said about that Um, prior to getting into the military, who you were before you got in, if you came from um, a a very strong household or a broken household, and then you go into the military, depending on how you identified yourself prior, um, often has some implications of what transitioning out is going to look like, because if you found your family and your tribe within the military, getting out is going to be 
a, a whole different realm of struggle. Um, but it can also be beautiful depending on how you, sh- you know, sh- shape your mindset around that. Um, I think that the uh, perspective of military and what the military teaches folks is really the true burden and honor of leadership. Um, you do become family with a variety of different people that you've served with um, and their family units because you are located on the same base right, right. or doing the same deployment. So then um, when you get out of the military, you it becomes an identity crisis because you at the youngest that I believe that you can get out if you serve all four years is around 22. Um, by 22, a lot of your friends who didn't go to the military have already graduated college, have already gotten their first um, rental home or have purchased their own home or mm-hmm. had multiple babies. So they've already created their identity outside of their home And then you get out of the military, which four years, I think a lot of people serve beyond that. Um, So if you're getting out at six to 12 years, you're coming out at a much later age than your peer group. And you have to identify your own purpose, your own beliefs, your own values and wants and desires for your life. And the military has kind of taught you that this is going to be what your value set is, whether you want it to be or not, or this is what your future is going to look like, whether you want it to or not. And so then you have to define all of that for yourself. And if you're having to do that with a family unit who's not used to having you at home, or maybe your home is now broken because you have deployed too many times, or, um, you know, your wife has now grown outside of your your marriage as far as what she wants and desires in her future. I mean, there's so many layers to all of this that um, it it becomes just a a massive identity crisis. And so if you don't have people, if you are not preparing yourself in the military um, within that last few, you know, six to seven months as you're transitioning out of the military, if you're not preparing yourself for that mindset and also building a community around you to help you grow as you, the day one that you get out of the military, I think that there becomes a lot more of a struggle there if you're not preparing yourself for success in that capacity. Sure. And that's when you discover that magical world called military contracting and everything sort of stays the same, but doesn't. (laughs) Um, Chris, can I offer something? I just, um, so, uh, and I apologize for for jumping in, but it, I think it it flows right into this. It's something that Jeff Boss taught me when we were working on his book, Navigating Chaos. And what I was at a transitional point in my life at that time because what you said to me about the way the military works it resonated because I was somebody that went to college for twelve years, and so when I got out of college with my degree, I was thirty. Then I had kids. I was a stay at home mom. Everything was cool till I was about thirty five, and then I got divorced, and I had to create a career. You can't go back into being a college professor when you never started. It's not a thing. Um, What Jeff told me was find like a Venn diagram, find the nexus of your passion, something only you can do and a need in the world. And he said, when you can find the space where those things overlap, you're in the sweet spot. And for me, 
it shone, it shone a light straight down the path to where I am right now because it was the only thing that makes sense. I couldn't explain why I was so passionate about working with the military community, but I knew that was it. I needed to be there. I know I can write. I don't know why, but that's probably the only thing I do actually pretty well. And then, um, and, and, and there was a need because there were so many people who had stories to tell. So there it was. And, and, and um, that I think Kevin Flake, he's a guy, a Green Beret I'm working with. Um, he, his stuff is on woundedbywar.com. You can go see his little documentary and everything. And he's doing a book right now. He's an amazing story. But one thing that Kevin talks about in his life was when he followed that traditional route, you know, he was wounded as a Green Beret, gets out, figures everything out. He's now working at Goldman Sachs. He's gone to Harvard. He's gone to MIT. He's doing everything that's supposed to make you happy and supposed to define success in the civilian world. And at Goldman, he was working, and forgive me, Kevin, if I have the story wrong at all, but he was working with a friend who had had this lifelong dream of being a firefighter and basically coached this friend into the point where he picked up everything, moved out West and became a firefighter and couldn't be happier. And I think it's like Elisa was saying, when you, you, it, you have to be honest with yourself about what's really going to make you happy. And just because it might be prestigious to go to Wharton and get an MBA and then be a hedge fund guy in Connecticut, is that what you really want? Um, and it's finding that fulfillment. You have to define that path for yourself in the civilian world, as you as you pointed out so well, because it won't. It's not just there for you. It's a really interesting point because that's right. The military, uh, it's a very military mindset to value credentials. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. what you so you know when your resume is on your uniform, um, and you're constantly walking around in it. You're judged by the credentials you have, and that's a and there certainly is parallels to that in the civilian world, but the civilian world has a lot a much wider spectrum and, and many more avenues. And that is, that's a really, I, I could see that being a big uh, gear shift for anybody transitioning to deal with Kathy in your experience. Um, what did you see? The big difference was between let's pick on Charlie. Let's pick on your brother v- between him, for example, before the military, okay. after the military. I mean, you've seen the, the, the before, during and, and after phases um, in your family with friends, with neighbors and all that. Uh, what do you think? How, how have you seen people navigate it uh, successfully? Um, or do you think sometimes there's just comfort in staying with what's known and just, hey, go in the military, do your 20 years, become a contractor for 20 years, and then call it a life? Well, that's honestly what my dad did. And so that was an interesting transition for him is, you know, he had, I believe, 26, 27 mm-hmm. years in. And then when he got out, he did go work for a contractor. But one of the things I'd like to give him a hard time about is my dad's uniform. You know, he grew up, he wore his uniform every day in the army. And when he transitioned to the military, he went to work for a government contractor that was a bunch of engineers. And so they're in their jeans and their polo shirts. And my dad comes to work every day in a suit and a tie. And so they would always give him a hard time about about his uniform. So I, I think, I don't think you ever totally leave it. And I think that maybe that's a misconception is that when you transition out, you're going to be done. Cause I, you know, they also gave him a hard time about if he would have, um, if he would get mad or get angry, they'd call it going Colonel. on him. Uh And, um, but the one thing that I've heard you guys talk about and, I'm sorry. I I would like to follow up with you because I've heard all three of you say it, but you talk about finding your tribe and how important that that is. Um, 
how can we help people find their tribe? And Dr. Alice, you were talking about people writing their stories. I think that that's important as well. So how do how do we encourage that? Because I don't know what that life is like. I I get stories like we all do. You know, people sitting around having a beer. Or, you know, in some other cases, a biker bar. Um, and get to hear some of the good stories. Um, but how do we encourage that to, you know, welcome people into our tribe or start your new tribe and be comfortable telling your stories? Because I think those stories are important. So how do we do that? How do I, you know, little old me sitting in small town, middle of nowhere, how can I encourage my neighbor who I know served? You know, I'd like to hear your stories because, you know, how do I do that? I don't don't have any Mm -hmm. good answers for this probably, but I'm going to throw a couple of ideas that immediately come to mind out. I think one thing is is to encourage the individuality of a service member. I think sometimes just like – you know, the uniform is your resume is your, and you're walking around with it all the time. Similarly, I think when you come out of the service, you kind of always are your sexiest assignment because anybody that you talk to that knows you're in, it's going to be, oh, well, yeah, well, I was with this unit or I did this deployment or I got this award or I did. And, and that's who you are. And that's fair game. That's all well and good. There's a lot great with that. It's certainly, um, it can reveal something about you. Um, and it does, but is that the, the height of your individuality? Um, I'm not sure. It, there's a lot to say, you know, Hey, I was, you know, um, in Fallujah in 2006, uh, with, you know, seal team three or something. Hey, I mean, hats off to you. That's God's work. Good for you. That's awesome. But you're also an individual and to to me, and this is, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, but to me, it seems like peeling the, the layers of that onion back and going, okay, so beneath that, who really are you? And Kathy, I think you hit mm-hmm. on it. The ability to tell your stories is where you start to get at the core of that individuality because sure, mm-hmm. you're, you're part of an organization, but not everybody in that organization came from your town or had your parents or had your childhood or you know, had that first relationship that you had in high school or whatever, you know, um, there's a lot of fundamental parts that make up who you are and being able to tell that story, I think does start to get at what makes you an individual. And then Alice, to your point can help with that kind of Venn diagram of, Hey, this is where my individuality overlaps with my passions and my talents, et cetera. Yeah. And you know, the, um, what you were saying there made me think about enabling the individuality of an individual. Uh, that's repetitive, but 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 listening more than talking, not assuming anything, not bringing anything to the table, and allowing them to flow into that space in the way that feels natural to them. And and that's why every interview I do always is different it, because because it's just a, a non judgmental, open very curious, loving ear. And, and I always say, I really kind of fall in love a little bit with everybody I talk to because you have to, there's, there's love there for their story. They're nothing they say is wrong. It's just the truth. And, um, you know, I have that friend I mentioned at the beginning who I posed this question to, who's still active. I've never seen a picture of him in any type of combat fatigues kit, any type of gear guy's been in the teams for 20 years, very good friend of mine, but he, it's deliberately that way. I know as much about him as a human and actually way more as a human than I do about, about 
um, any professional achievements he's made. And part of that's very deliberate. I don't ask because if it's not offered, he doesn't want to talk about it. And why do we have to talk about it? Maybe, you know, there, there are other interesting facets there. He was a missionary before he was a SEAL. Um, I think allowing people to define themselves in that way so that you're not just pigeonholing it and, and, and um, forcing them into a box where they have to define themselves according to your civilian terms of what you think a service member is. Um, I've spoken to so many people who are hurting who, and maybe Elisa can speak to this too, who felt, feel a little trapped by that um, tendency to deify service members and hold them up like deities. I know that Kevin Flake talks about that very openly in a lot of his public speaking and podcasts where um, he was caught up in that idea of being the good wounded veteran mm -hmm. and what that looked like. Mm -hmm. And what if he was falling short? What if he wasn't wounded enough? What about the wounds people can't see and all the inches of scars under his clothes and stories of, you know, the guy in the wheelchair next to him being fawned over and Kevin standing right there having lost everything, but they can't see what's going on with him because it's under his clothing. I think the only way to mitigate that on the civilian end is is just to be quiet and listen more than you than you speak. You touched on something, and Elisa, I, I, I want to get your read on this as well, but it, this is obviously a huge subject, um, survivor's guilt. You know, and obviously that can mean, hey, you lost buddies, you made it, they didn't, and what that does to you psychologically, what that means for the rest of your life, uh, the purpose, the weight that sometimes you can carry. Sometimes, though, survivor's guilt isn't even that dramatic, I don't think. Um it, I, I know that for, for me, um, and I'm sure for many others, um, it's even just about, hey, if you didn't do your full 20 years, um, did you leave too soon? Are other people going to have to go out there and pick up the mantle that you left behind? And um, should, you have, should you have seen that through? The weight that can happen, um, that can make you think, yeah, I'm not uh, – it can put you across purposes with that quest to kind of find your individuality because you're going, hey, I still owe an allegiance to a group behind me, and I and I don't want my individuality to outpace their needs or outpace that memory. Does that kind of make sense, Lisa? You know where I'm going with this? Yes, and um, you know I, I think that because of social media and because the military community, in my perspective, really thrives on social media because it's a way to stay connected with those who are deployed, who are um, stationed at different bases, who, you know, are no longer part of the military. So you get to stay connected with those individuals and it becomes um, very clicky in, in many capacities. I actually was talking to Charlie about that the other day where clicks are, are very ever prevalent on social media and you wouldn't think that that's possible, but it is. Um, and I, I think that um, in the ideology of individualism and, and getting your own identity outside the military community is very difficult, even more so because of social media, because you see those individuals who are doing the sexy things in um, entrepreneurship in uh, getting involved with certain companies to model their product, um, all of these different things that are very niche and very small focused. And so, you know, something that I always tell folks who are, are thinking about going into an entrepreneurial endeavor is to 
do it for you and do it for what you are most passionate about. It doesn't have to be coffee. It doesn't have to be cigars. It doesn't have to be um, the gun companies. You know, it, it can be, I just met some individuals from Live American Yogi. And how cool is it that these are, you know, to some definition, an alpha masculine male who's doing yoga, who can still go downrange and, and protect his country. Um, I think that uh, something that Sebastian Younger had said in his book, um, Tribe and On Homecoming, that's kind of always stayed with me is that um, veterans they are, they have learned how to, excuse me, <clears throat> they have um, learned how to and are willing to die for their country, but they don't know how to live for it once they get home. Um, mm. And so it's, it's that dichotomy of, of having to learn how to live mm. for yourself and for your family and for your country and for the individuals who didn't make it home. And how do you do that mm -hmm. to honor them? And it, it becomes um, a, a really heavy weight, I imagine, on their shoulders. Um, and then you've got, on top of all of that, then you've also got those disabilities that you have to deal with. You've got the healthcare system to navigate. And you have to advocate for yourself, not only in the civilian world within healthcare, but also you have to do that, that with the VA and that gets exhausting. So then you've got a whole host of other problems on top of trying to identify your identity and that it just, it becomes a whirlwind of chaos. And if you don't have your identity to fall back on, if you're still trying to find that identity and then you are still navigating relationship problems I mean, it yeah. just becomes yeah. way too much. You know, that's a great that's a great point. Also, there's a lot of sunken cost. You've done whatever your job has been in the military for X number of years, and certainly if it's been a 20 year career, even more so. And then suddenly you kind of have to almost deep six it and go, okay, now what do I do? And it's yes. like, well, what, what did right. I just do for 20 years? You know, how am I? You know, it, hopefully you can build on it, but there's only so many you know, military consultants at NBC, you know, I mean, I mean how, how many times can you actually leverage exactly the, the, the perspective and the experience that you had? Um, guys, as, as always, we, we go long on this stuff and I, um, I really didn't want to leave us, um, without talking at length about Alice's article because it was the Havoc Journal article of the year for 2020. Alice wrote uh, the piece, We Are the Useful Idiots, which I was deeply jealous of. It summed up very articulately ideas that I'd been dallying with for years. It was an outstanding piece. Alice, just talk us through uh, what you want to from that, and I'm sure we all have reactions to it. Um, I'm just grateful that that piece got the legs that it did. And I can't really take credit for many of the ideas. I mean, that that all came from a conversation I had with Chris Costa. And Chris deserves the credit for all of that. And it was just me being the mouthpiece. And I think that's a lot of what I do is I see myself as just a translator or a little conduit between messages that need sharing from the military community and, and the civilian world. And I just try to present things in a way that um, can hopefully you know, translate those things and, and help them pick up a little steam and, and convey to civilians that there are so many things that we don't know that, that, that aren't getting, there's the bridge, the communication isn't happening. You know, I always think of 9-11 and, and the intelligence gaps that were found in the aftermath of 9-11. And 
there are so just like that when we think about things today like school security or anything else there's so many things where the military community has the answer they've they've been doing it for years it's sitting right there but we just need to take it and pass it on and make it matter to people so that's what this was all about it was really about looking at social media and saying to people hey you know this this beast is out of control um we're completely playing into the hands of stuff that that is well known in the intelligence community and it was about educating the civilian public on 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 what they're doing and how they're being used as pawns and how it's destabilizing our country from from within i um i'm going to give you my take on it and then um we can react to it <laughs> but what, some of the i mean the threads that you bring up there from your uh, conversation obviously but um were great about you know, obviously how social media is a vehicle that can start to radicalize us against each other, turn us against each other. Um, there's uh, one of my pet issues or, or what's the word I'm looking for? My One of my pet uh, stories, I guess, because I love the reaction it always gets was uh, the um, when we look back at the Anna Chapman case in 2009, was it when the uh, Russian spy ring was brought down in the greater New York area. And because Anna Chapman was a blonde buxom uh, Russian spy, she got all the headlines, but one of the lesser known um, people in that spy ring was Vicky Pelias, who was a columnist uh, for El Diario, the number one Spanish language magazine. And she was a, Russian agent, sleeper agent with her husband, um, Juan Lazaro, who uh, if one, I'll include it in the show notes so people can read up on it, but it's, it's hilarious in, in how un-Spanish he was. For one thing, he didn't know any Spanish and he spoke with a deep <laughs> Russian accent at their home out in New Jersey. And people always thought it was interesting. They didn't see him employed, but they had a very nice home and you know, a lot of, a lot of cognitive dissonance there that kind of got ignored. Um, but she was, a, a, I mean, she was a columnist for 20 years there and then disappeared and now has reemerged down in, in uh, I, I want to say in Peru where she's relaunched her journalism quote unquote career uh, down there. But I mean, you know, just a, an active front for the Russian government. Um, and certainly the way that uh, w- when we start to have more heat than light in our news consumption, that does leave us prone to manipulation. Um, Kathy, what did you think? I know you're a big fan of that piece. I am just because, like you said, she hit all the right notes. It's Are you really paying attention to what's going on? And I think she took a lot of heat for it, but I was very proud of what she said because I think like, like you mentioned, Chris, a lot of us had been feeling that way and she just gave us all, I think a collective voice going. Yeah. There's something to be said for, um, I'm stealing this line from somebody, somebody much smarter than me once said, if you only know the history of one country, you don't know the history of any country. And I think that in the Mm. United States, we are so with social media and all this influence, we are so consumed with current events, but, and sometimes we know our own history. Although a lot of times I think we just, everybody was asleep during their school and career and now have woken up on social media and gone, Hey, did you know Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus? And it's like, got it. You just saw Twitter. Got it. But, um, but I, but I think we're also incredibly 
solipsistic about what's going on in the rest of the world. So we're quick to condemn ourselves. We're quick to look and self-flagellate and look for reasons why America is so evil. But we can't really satisfactorily answer the question of who's doing better. Okay, so you have a lot of problems with America. Got it. Bitchin'. Who, who, where, where is your shining example of humanity's triumph over the evils of just being human? What, where else is that going along more swimmingly? And I think that's our solipsism <laughs> where we're not able to, where, where we, we fascinate on ourselves. And for, for me, I, I was deployed each of the last five years. And um, so I spent the entire Trump administration overseas and I um, have written prolifically about how I'm not a fan of Donald Trump or his administration. Um, but it never ceased to amaze me how little that mattered overseas. Um, and, and how to the American media, the story was Trump or what Trump's take was the Trump read, looking at everything through a Trump lens and look, he's the president of the United States. He's not an inconsequential person, but Man, when you put that in the when you realize that that's really just one narrow aperture, the the bigger picture is, hey, man, terrorism is terrorism. Humanitarian concerns are humanitarian concerns. Sometimes Trump can affect that. Sometimes he can't. But the conversation is not necessary. It doesn't start and end with him. And um, I say all that to say that in your piece, Alice, what what struck me is that this is the product this neuroticism, this self-flagellation, this antipathy against people that ideologically we don't agree with is, is a product of us not having the perspective that, hey, we actually are all firing in the same direction, but let's acknowledge that because we're, we're deluding ourselves into thinking there's an enemy where there doesn't need to be. Lisa, mm-hmm. yeah, oh, sorry. No, Alice, go ahead. Oh. Yeah. No, it, it's just this... Um and I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's it's a I think it's it's a lacking in education. I think that so many of us have or so many people in this country have a pretty myopic focus internally. And because of that, there is a complete lack of perspective. And so we think that the enemy is within. We think that a microaggression is the worst thing that could happen to us today. And we've completely there's just a, a complete, utter and total lack of perspective. And there's a lot of things like that that aren't popular or politically correct to say, but I don't care because they're the truth. That's the truth. Well, and that's why I was really glad you talked with uh, Chris Costa. Is that, am I saying it's not Costa, it's mm-hmm. Costa. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. A great conversation as a, uh, I, I, I believe that if you're in the intelligence business, I don't think this is a very groundbreaking thing to say, but your job should be the truth um, as unpleasant uh, or as unpredictable as it as it may be. Um, and you, you have to be able to state that uh, clearly. And I think opening our eyes to the fact that um, things that are very tempting for us to agree with things that are too good to fact check um, is a, that's a real temptation. And we have to be aware of what that can, what paths that can lead us down. Elisa, what did you think? Um, well, and to touch what Allison just said about lack of education, you know, something that I had learned, uh, I went to school and got a journalism degree. I graduated in 2009 and, uh, something that was taught within multiple courses was that the majority of the American population is at a, a fifth grade reading comprehension level. Um, and so you have to write and really kind of dumb it down to a fifth grade reading level within media. 
Um, and so that's something, there's something to be said about that with everything that's going on in this world with memes that are taken at, at what, the, <laughs> what they're saying and, and as truth, um, we're such a, a community or such a, a world that we only read the headlines of articles. We don't actually divulge into those articles. And so, um, I mean, it's just a, a very murky place because we don't have critical thinkers and we don't. And if you're in a home that is lashing out at the TV because they got upset with one thing that a reporter said, but they aren't looking at it from a worldwide perspective, um, I think we're, we're definitely in a lot of trouble. And that's, you know, Alice's article is phenomenal. And it was, was so timely with what's still going on today, but it was, uh, it felt just so tumultuous um, when it launched last spring. And, um, but Nothing has really changed since then either. So, um, and, yeah, I hope it's not evergreen forever. But yeah, yeah hopefully <laughs> right, at some point right. this will be a dated article. But right. yeah, um, you know, it's, yeah. it's Alice, you're 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 that's ethically awesome of you that you give him that you give Chris Costa so much credit for so many of the ideas. But there's certainly one thing at the end that you put on that I think makes your piece, which is your takeaways about how to be a better news consumer. Um, you don't have to mm-hmm. list all of them for us, but just so people have a taste, um, what what were your biggest takeaways on how to be a better news consumer? Um, well, be your own intelligence analyst is one. I mean, I think Elisa was saying, you know, fact checking what's out there. That's <clears throat> that being said, I think that's a downright challenging task for anybody these days. I don't know where to go for news. I check a lot of sources and I don't love any of them. Um, I see more of the bias and more of the drama than the truth anywhere. And I don't know where the truth lies somewhere in the middle of anything anymore. Um, you know, I think that, that the bigger piece for me, the biggest takeaway of that article and the, and the message I wanted to drive home was we need to get back to being decent human beings. I think that social media is a beast that has manifested a collective unconscious of the worst of hum- of humanity. I mean, from the sex modern day sex and slavery trades to to you know fighting and bickering with your former co- former college roommates and unfriending each other and blocking each other over political disagreements. It's just that, and I say it because it's happened say, to me. Not it's based stupid. on a true story, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh God! And it's like, yeah. why? Yeah. Why? You know why? And I think. The obvious answers in my life experience, being a girl who's done everything from growing up in, I wouldn't say rural Ohio, but very white area of the country in Ohio to, to, you know, the University of Virginia, which was so self-segregated and then living in New York City and being the only white girl working at a Sephora store and then, then fighting now at a fight gym in inner city Cleveland with people from every reach of our society who have found equality over sweating and bleeding together. Um, that the all of the stuff goes away really fast when you find a reason to love somebody. And that's it. It boil it sounds cheesy and it sounds corny, but it's the truth. And all the tough, hard military folks out there know what love is because you die for the guy next to you, as you've told me, in a foxhole. And it's the same thing where why aren't we doing the obvious stuff? You know, if, if instead of bickering on social media about the president and, and trying to make it about politics, how about you invite the church down the road for a barbecue and you guys both do it so that we don't have white churches and black churches? Like, 
but just, you know, and, and maybe it's not about race. Maybe it's just about your neighbor or your former college roommate. But but if we can get back to face-to-face interaction and get back to, to what's real and try to put our focus back on the, 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 the circle immediately affecting us, like Kathy, you know, and, and your son sending candy to the troops, doing good in your circle, in, in your community, that's the country that's worth fighting for. That's a strong nation. That's a nation that can't be taken down by some bullshit attempts to cause fights on social media that make us want to pick up signs and go uh, fight each other in the street. I mean, you're, you're right. And it's, I'm, I'm stealing this from somebody and I've, I've, I've stolen it so much. I don't even remember who I'm stealing it from. Um, but someone I think accurately said when we stopped, uh, with the decline of institutional religion in this country, we didn't become a less religious people. We just changed what our religions are. Our religion is now politics. Um, and, right. and it's, and, and we think, and this is why it's always a laugh when you, um, you know, when I've heard atheists uh, talk about, well, you know, now we'll have peace because organized religion will be going away. We're all human beings are religious by nature. It's just, they're just going to change the religion. Mm-hmm. We're not going to call it Protestantism, yeah. Catholicism, but we'll be all about the, everything somehow is a, is a federal issue. Everything has to be about the president, whether it's Biden, whether it's Trump, what have you. And we're going to see everything through those lenses. And um, I want to throw out a couple things and bounce this off. You guys uh, tell me what you think about it. This has been my own informal um, standards for how I try to consume news. For one thing, I refuse to to look at um, televised news sources. I say that because for a uh, actually a very good and rehabilitative point in my life, I worked for five years at CNN and I felt like I saw how the sausage was made. And I'm not saying that in a conspiracy theorist <laughs> kind of way, um, you know, but I became acutely aware that I think the studies show that there's new viewers every seven minutes. So your headlines and all your news stories have to be repeated every seven minutes. Anybody that's doing news stories based off of seven minute cycle is only going to get the wave tops of an issue. And so mm-hmm. I refuse to do anything except if I can read it, I'll read it. So if there's an article, an opinion piece or what have you, great. But if it's televised, um, I, I I can't base a whole lot off it. It doesn't mean I won't watch it. I mean, I'm not a monk, but um, but it does mean I'm not going to read a whole, put a whole lot of weight into it or a whole lot of emphasis behind it. That to me, I've I've found to be helpful because almost inevitably the people that I'd watch on CNN that I go, oh, what a jackass, or oh boy, they make a great point. When you actually read what they've written or you read a longer description about the issue they'd be talking about, man, there's a lot more nuance to it than just what they're saying. Um, and not, and they're not trying to be devious. They're not, you know, walking around with horns on their head and trying to manipulate necessarily. It's just, there's only so much you can say if you're trying to fit everything into seven minutes before you regurgitate, you know, the headlines again. That's one thing that I've, uh, that I've found that's helped me. The other thing is to acknowledge there's going to be bias. To me, the, the worst thing is when you try to be a quote unquote impartial news source, because I, I find that to be um, intellectually dishonest. You, uh, news media is going to have a bias. Be open where your bias is, and then let's just get on with it. Because at least we can discount mm-hmm. for bias if we know it's there. But if you're trying to fool us mm-hmm. into saying you don't, you hey, I've I have no dog in this fight. I just want to tell you that if you uh, voted for Trump, you are in fact the devil. Okay, well, I mean, it's it's like that. That's not a tenable position. So those are two two <laughs> pillars that you know I've I've they've kind of helped me. I throw that out there. Um, uh, as a free for all, uh, thoughts, comments, 
what do you guys think? Reactions in general? I think it's important to have conversations. You know, it's not, um, I've intentionally surrounded myself with people who uh, challenge my thinking and, um, and that's on a variety of different topics, not just politics. Um, And so I, I think over the course of, especially this last year, we've lost that ability to have connection through conversation and in-person conversation where uh, our community and our world is really thriving on internet connection. Um, No pun intended, but it is, uh, I I think it's the downfall of many relationships because you're not hearing their tone. You are not understanding um, what the other person is saying. And if they use just one wrong word in, in text, then you automatically justify your anger um, and dismiss everything that they are saying because you're so angry on the other side of a screen. So, well, yeah. Um, and if it's a fifth grade reading level, what's the writing level? I mean, yeah, right. yeah it's a lot of right. weight to put on right. what might not be the most articulately phrased sentence. Yes. And so right. being open to having right. those hard conversations with people you don't agree with. And I think that you will find that you actually agree on a lot of things. Um, because there are so many extremes that are being displayed on social media because that's the only way that you can get a like or get a share off your posts. And uh, so I I think Mm -hmm. the virility of things is important to people and that's why, and they like to ruffle up feathers. But I think overall, if people are willing to have more conversations with each other and hear each other out, that would accomplish a lot of issues that we've had. Um, Yeah. Over yeah, the, the danger's done from yeah. dopamine rush. Yeah, absolutely. Alice, yes. go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think just piggybacking on what Elisa said about having those difficult conversations. Um, in the wake of the Capitol, I reached back out to Chris Costa in January. I wanted to get his take on that because he lives in D.C. and uh, and works there. And you know, we got to talking, and it's funny because none of those conversations, which were multiple and lengthy, and other people were brought in and really became a deep discussion. Um, they never saw the light of day. Nothing got published from it because it wasn't what it was about. We were really digging and trying to. Um, what, what we discovered were, were opportunities, I guess, within where we thought we would automatically agree with one another. We didn't see things the same way. Different things were brought to light in terms of um, his affiliation with government entities and, and faith in those institutions. Um, my current life in a, now a rural county in Ohio where, um, you know, this is the place where the, the, the white right extremism that they're so concerned about currently is, is I'm not saying it's originating in my county, but the culture here is the, the population they're concerned with. And I was able to share some of the, the grievances and of, of, of that culture with him. And he was really surprised to hear about the people that, that don't have voices and their points of view and some of the things I could share there. Um, mm-hmm. Creating, actively seeking and creating the forum for those conversations, um, I think is, is the most powerful thing that, that we can have right now. And and the ability to the, not just the ability, the desire to persuade as opposed to demean, I think is a really great one. There was a, uh, this is going to sound very uh, elitist and cosmopolitan of me and I really don't care, but there was a a New Yorker cartoon (laughs) uh, a few years ago with a father and his son and he's, and the father's down on a knee and he says, son, just remember if you can't say anything nice, at least make it bitingly witty. 
And it was, it was like, yeah, that's that, that, that's where we're at. If you can't say something nice, crush the other person's soul on social media. And I, and I think, and, and let me be clear, I'm not in favor of nice conversations necessarily, but I'm a big fan of persuasion. And I think if you, if you lose the, the desire to persuade somebody, then what are you looking for? You're, you're looking for a dopamine rush based off of bile, based off of hatred, based off of, of, uh, you know, um, othering the other person in a way that that allows no recourse. There's no face-saving measure. There's no writhing in the crushing grip of reason. It's it, You've literally left no out except violence. And we have to be able to, to have that. We have to have that desire to persuade people. Kathy, what do you think? What am I missing? Well, I'm agreeing with everything that you guys are saying. And I think too, that we do have you know, the desire to persuade somebody, but we need to understand that we're probably not going to always persuade them over to our side. And that's not a bad thing. I've learned the most, I think, from people that I didn't agree with. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to agree with them, whether it's politically or religiously or socially. I'm probably not going to agree with you, but I'm going to listen to you because Mm -hmm. there's, there's a story to be told. There's something to learn from you. And I can listen respectfully, but I also in return want you to listen to my point of view. And then like I think Dr. Alice said, we'll find some common ground somewhere. Well, yeah. yeah. And 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 starting from that basis that we, we there is a common humanity at least and that disagreement doesn't mean the sign of the devil. Um, I, I think there's mm-hmm. the, the, the attempt to demean and belittle and go into ad hominem attacks as a first resort, I, I, you're only creating enemies. And unfortunately, I feel like now there's a lot more, um, the incentive structure has changed where that's what people are looking for, um, is they want the confirmation from their own side. And they want that over yeah. the ability to try to persuade. And you're right, Kathy. I mean, hey, you may not persuade me. I might, I might really know what I'm talking about or really believe I know what I'm talking about to the point that I'm like, yeah, I hear you. I'm just, I'm just don't agree, but man, we got to, that has to be our effort is to try to persuade at least. Um, otherwise mm-hmm. what else are we left with? Um, I, 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 sorry, go ahead. I think also one thing I identified within myself, uh, in the past year and the COVID time, you know, how contemplative we've all been and how relegated to social media we've all been has really caused me to reflect on this. Um, I had a lot of strongly held beliefs for which I could not summarize the counter argument. And to me, that became a red flag where I told myself, you know what, if you're so entrenched in what you think you're so sure is true, Alice, you should be able to to counter the the main points of every counter argument. And when I realized I couldn't do that, it shifted my focus. And Another strange thing happened when I started to um, explore alternate viewpoints. I started to shift on my own a little bit. That was a good growth exercise for me because I think none of us is immune to that uh, social media echo chamber that you hear referenced so often where we create these things that, you know, psychologists call it confirmation bias and you hold a belief and then you seek out media that confirms your belief. And there you go. You're right all the time. It feels so good. Um, That's not reality. And so, uh, that's a really good way to stretch yourself and to grow, I think, is to um, actively make sure and check yourself, um, you know, hey, do I, can, can I really 
am I so sure I'm right? And and what's because I think a lot of times, and when you look at to go back to Height's book, The Righteous Mind, Height talks a lot about that, which is why are good people divided by our beliefs in politics and religion? And the truth of the matter is, and what he lands on is that nobody's really wrong. If you look at the big picture globally and, and nationally in history, um, we kind of need different parties and different factions to historically balance each other, check one another. So it works out. But that takes a lot of humility. And, and I think when you mentioned ego, I'm, I've been working lately on this presentation, a leadership presentation. And one of the things I land on at the end is humility, because I hear it referenced so often in high performing teams, elite teams, that why would that be such a factor in high performance? But I think the humility is the only thing that opens you up to the truth. If your ego is involved in a conversation, you're not listening and and you're speaking from a place of self-justification and confirmation bias. And it's only when your ego can get out of the way that you can actually persuade, be persuaded um, or grow. Yeah, no, that absolutely. I totally see that. Um, I want to uh, transition to uh, – <laughs> Our, our do-gooder segment, our situational awareness segment, because I do want to make sure that we touch all of the different things that uh, everybody's doing and resources that we can offer. Um, you guys, as before we transition to that, I just want to throw out though, um, I've said this every week um, and this week I, I mean it as much, if not more than other weeks, uh, we could have done five hours on this and um, there's so much I, I will go through and curate all the links that we need for show notes because um, obviously all we can really touch on even in an hour plus is wave tops on this. This is great stuff. And uh, you guys have given me like five article ideas just out of this alone. So um, hopefully you've gotten a bunch out of as well and everyone listening. Um, but this this is a conversation that I, I really want to continue um, with you all down the road. Um, Alice, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the 800 projects you have going on. Walk us through uh, what we need to know, where we need to find you, the books that we need to know about. Uh, tell us what you're working on. Um, well, those current books are out there. Um, there's links on my, on my website. Basically, if you go to my site, so um, aliceatalanta.com, A-T-A-L-A-N-T-A, um, you can find some of that stuff. Um, please come follow me on Instagram. And I can't remember now. <laughs> I think it's Alice Atalanta PhD. That's what you told me. Um, so yeah, I'll go with that. I'll give you it? that. Yeah. Okay. That's what it looks yeah. like. Yep. Yeah. At Instagram. But you know, I'm here and I do actually this for a living. So professionally, if there are services that your organization might need communications wise, um, things that you're working on, a manuscript you want looked over, writing that needs editing, uh, coach writing that needs coaching, um, all of those things. I'm I'm really here to help facilitate that storytelling for people. So I encourage folks to reach out. Um, and you can also get me on my email. I threw my personal email on there. Um, it's just Alice Atalanta at Gmail. But shoot me a message if you know there's anything people want to talk about or ideas they have or they're thinking about doing some writing. Um, that's that's what I'm well, doing. Well, it's great stuff, and it, and we didn't even mean to give you one long commercial up front, but we really did when we talked about people telling their stories and how key that is to getting your individuality uh, to be expressed and and out there, um, and and what you're doing, uh, the stories that you've. Uh, you've been working on. I haven't, I've, they're all in my queue. Um, they look great. I know of the people that you were writing with, um, but to, to read them, I'm looking forward to it. It's funny. I, I just have to say this, <clears throat> you know, I, there's moments where I go, 
Okay, I got it. Another seal I got to hear from. Okay, I got it. Another another SF dude. And the problem is you just you you open it up and it's never the same. It's never the same story twice. Right. It always and and with a great writer obviously you can as we talked about before, peel away the layers of the onion. And there's more than just the same uniform. There's more than just the same tab or the same trident. There's a lot of, of um, insight, a lot of wisdom and a lot of um, very individual experiences. They might've gone through similar training as other books we've read from seals or ranger types, but how that hits the individual is always an unpredictable and different uh, take and uh, really interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, I think, and with, you know, with the two books I'm currently doing, so with Kevin Flake's uh, project, that's, he's at Wounded by War, um, he's a Green Beret, but he talks about his story of being wounded and bouncing back with a really uncommon humility, I think, for guys who are speaking out from that demographic. So you're going to get a much more raw take on what he really went through and what he really dealt with. Um, He's not interested in sounding bigger or stronger or superhero-like. Um, so that's what's coming out of Kevin that's really unique and, and I think refreshing. And also it, it opens up the door for other people to tell their story in that way. And then with Doc Pete Chambers, he was at Fieldcraft Survival. And Doc is just emerging from the shadows and blowing up. So I'm still learning who Doc is because he's so beloved to so many. I'm so blessed to get to spend so much time talking to him and hearing his cowboy wisdom and his stories in his cowboy voices, which are amazing. Um but, you know, Doc is really <clears throat> the Deopresso Liber side of, of SF. We hear a lot of shoot him up, bang him up kind of stories. But Doc is about, you know, saving little kids. And, you know, I'm not going to share his stuff because when he tells it, it's, it's going to be better. Um, but Doc Pete is the wisdom and the humanity. And I'm not going to say the big warm hug because it's not that he's a tough dude. But um, but it's it, there's there's richness and depth that I think will heal yeah. for people when they hear that, that's story. awesome and, th- and that's exactly what we're talking about it, it's it, once you get past just the title of SF or seal or whatever there there's it's the individual the way that individual's uh, experience has been uh, laid out um, yeah that that sounds really awesome I'm, I'm g'd up for it um, they'll be we got to have you on before during and after the release of those books as well but we want to hear more about that that really sounds cool yeah. Kathy um, I want to talk to you about your favorite nonprofit and it's one that I also have a lot of affection for second mission Foundation tell us about it oh absolutely well we're excited things are starting to to a lot of good things are starting to happen for us for those of you who don't know um second mission foundation is focused on helping veterans find their second mission to transition from from the veteran the military world um and we use veterans to include first responders and law enforcement um but to find their mission or like hopefully like dr alice said to find their sweet spot in their venn diagram you know where their passions and their talents interact and so we're very excited about that. We're about to help um, an author come along and publish his first book. And we've got some more um, that are coming behind that. So we've got lots of good things and you should hear lots of stuff from us probably very I know soon. Charlie's very fired up about this book. I keep hearing about it. Um, so we're going to have to have a, uh, we're going to have to start doing a book review show as well. We got Alice's stuff. We got second mission publishing things. There's a lot of cool stuff coming out. So uh, yeah, looking forward to all that. Uh, Alisa, um, what are you up to? What can we talk about? Um, well, I think um, because I am the CMO for Havoc Journal, I think the one thing that I would like to say to anybody is 
that if you're looking for a platform to share your voice and are connected to the military community in any capacity, um, we would love to share your words and, and share your heart with our our community. And that can be anywhere from a private military contractor, law enforcement, um, the fire department, as well as military veterans, active duty. Um, we can do you under a, uh, a pseudonym so that your identity is protected. Um, but that is where we're at. And, and we want to continue our mission in that capacity. And um, if you're needing- I'm glad you met. Yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, I mean, look, I, I, I'm, I'm obviously a huge fan of Havoc Journal, but uh, I mean, it, but even beyond that, I think it's great because it's a platform that, hey, if you're not ready to write your book yet, this is a great feeder drug. Start, just start writing, just start putting pen to paper. Um, I, and I, I, I'm going to filibuster a little bit on this point because it's something that drives me nuts. The number of guys I know who were getting close to their 20 year retirements. And guys that have been everywhere, seen everything, done everything, you know, what have you. And you go, hey, man, that's great. You know, what are you going to do next? Because you'll be, you know, 40-ish and you got plenty of time left. And so, so many guys, it's, uh, you know, I was like, you're going to go teach? Are you going to, you know, write down some of the stuff you saw or anything like that? Nah, man, I, I got to go. Uh, I'm going to a freaking cabin and fuck the world. And I've heard that too many times. And I get it. I, I, I can totally empathize with where that's coming from. I get the cynicism. I get the uh, the disappointment at humanity. I get the urge to just withdraw, go to the cabin in the woods, hunt, fish, be by yourself, and just stay the hell away from people. I get it. I hope that nobody stays in that place. I hope if you have to do that for a little bit, God bless, but right Start putting pen to paper. The The world is richer for your stories, for your perspective, for your wisdom. Even if you're 180 degrees off what I think is the right thing to say or think or believe, you've lived, a, a, you've lived in a way that, man, own it. Own your experiences and own – and so a lot of guys, they don't mm-hmm. think they're worthy of it. Well, I wasn't this. I wasn't that. Hey, you were you. And you did whatever you did, mm-hmm. and that's the humanity of it. Uh, George Orwell wrote about the Spanish Civil War. He wasn't, you know, out there slitting Franco's throat, but he did enough that he could write about. There's a lot of humanity and a lot of lessons learned for humanity through the experiences of a vet, as you say, law enforcement, fire, all that included. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a shame for that capital, for that knowledge capital, to get flushed away with no record and for no one to hear it, even if it has to be done under a pseudonym, even if it's done in articles, even if it's written at a fifth grade level. Who cares? Get it, get stuff out there, start working on that. Because I, I just, I mean, I'm very passionate about the fact that I, I think that's missing. I'm tired of reading stuff from TikTok yeah. influencers and, you know, YouTube influencers and all this stuff. And it's like, how in God's name are these the people that have the bullhorns in society? Let's, yeah. let's finally have some people. It doesn't yeah. mean I'm going to agree with you, but man, at least you've lived. Let's hear from people that have lived as opposed to people that just decided to move to LA and specialize in makeup tips. Um, not that there's not a place for them too, but that shouldn't be all there is. And they certainly shouldn't be the right. ones that have the, uh, that are the, the vocal uh, proponents of social change and military policy and all the rest of it. Let's, let's hear from people that have done stuff and, and, and give them a flag. And for selfish reasons, I can't tell you how many people is Kevin being probably the first one, Kevin Flake to testify to this, that, sit down and say, wow, writing my story was therapeutic. 
Because until I say it all the time with my own writing, I don't get writer's block because writing isn't hard. Understanding is hard. I'll think for a month before I write an article. I'm, I'm figuring out, I'm discussing, I'm reading, I'm thinking, thinking, thinking. And, and when you write your story, and this is my academic background coming out, but you know what that is, a story and the way you build a story is you find connections, you find themes, you find resonance, you, you find something that happened in the past that's now mirrored and perhaps healed or transformed by something that happens in the present or the future, or you set new goals. And when you start to tell your story and you weave that tapestry, um, you heal, your life starts to make sense to you. You start to boil things down. You start to find meaning in seemingly senseless events. And, and I think for a service member, that's critical. When you can start to see your life in the big picture and say, you know what, this thing happened, that thing happened. But if it weren't for those bad things, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be there. Or, or, this, or this opportunity wouldn't have opened up. And you will heal, I promise you, when you start to write. I, that you couldn't have said it. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Ladies, thank you. This was outstanding. We have to do this again. Yes. Awesome. You know, it's fun. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This My pleasure. Listen, and, and I think a pleasure for everyone listening. As always, the show notes will be at the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. The weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. So show notes. So everything will be listed. Um, all the links we talked about, books that we talked about, stories that we talked about, anything that you're like, hey, what, what do they say? What was that about? Where can I find this? We'll post it there on the show notes. So again, the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. I also will put it out through my own channels, through Savage Wonder, um, and through uh, Havoc Journal as well. So you will have tons of places you can access the show notes. Also in the show notes, we have show alibis for anything that generally I misstated or I wake up at two in the morning and go, what did I say and why did I say it like that? Or man, I misremembered that or you know, whatever other brain farts I had. I'll, I'll get that inspiration in about 12 to 16 hours and I will wake up and jot it down and there will be show alibis. There will also be alibis for our guests if they have anything that they want to uh, expand on, correct, address, what have you. But generally, I'm the only one that tends to screw up at that level. Um, besides that, subscribe, please, and thank you. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it, Spotify, iTunes. Five-star reviews, as always, very welcome. We appreciate all your comments, but we really appreciate the five-star review uh, because that does matter. Um, if you liked us, if you like the show, if you like what we're trying to do here, if you just want to support vets in general or just have pity or sympathy for us, whatever your reason, we appreciate all your comments and your five-star review. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Dr. Alice Atalanta, Kathy Livermore, and Elisa Suderman, and I will see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. This is awesome. So I have to get my fangirl up, fangirling out of the way before we get started. I think we're all going to mutually fangirl. We'll just have to be careful we don't turn off all the macho men listening to this podcast (laughs) as we fangirl each other. (laughs) They'll be like, okay, next. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. It's awesome. I mean, it's 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 just amazing to connect with this tribe. And I say to Elise all the time.